0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Crossing Church, where life and faith intersect. Well, I, I have people ask me from time to time, what is your favorite part of being a pastor? So that's a great question. I, I can probably tell you what my favorite parts of being a pastor are not. Um, I can do administration, but I don't love it. Uh, I can sit in meetings, probably I like them. But I probably can only say there's certain meetings I love. The canceled ones, especially, are good meetings, right? I love those. Um, but there are things I absolutely love in pastoring. I love helping to shape people's spiritual formation. I mean, the privilege of being a part of investment in people's lives, especially at milestones like baptisms that I'm gonna get to do uh, here actually just later today that you're gonna get to enjoy on Easter by way of video. It's gonna be really special to, to see and to hear what God has been doing in the lives of people. So that brings me alive, pastoral care. Being with people in difficult moments and dark moments and challenging moments and sitting with them and praying with them and journeying with them through it. It isn't easy, but it's a joy for me. It brings me a great uh, uh, encouragement when God gives me that special place. But hands down, the thing that I love the most about being a pastor is what I'm doing this morning, hands down. For me, communication is like Christmas morning for me. Like I, I said before, I don't know when I'm preaching and teaching, whether I'm working or playing. It's just that much of a joy to do that. Well, I can tell you, and you've heard over the last number of weekends, that I'm going to be doing a little less of that. In the season that we are entering into and that we've been in since uh, middle of December with Kelly's cancer diagnosis, I'm going to be speaking a little less frequently, a little less often. And I can tell you, I in that, have had to trust the Lord for me as well, knowing that, um, that it is a loss in some ways. There is some part of that that I grieve. But I'm so thankful for our elders. I'm so thankful for their love and support and the way that they have just come around Kelly and I in this moment and the time that we're in and have given us their incredible support and love. And we felt it. I share with our staff team this past week that we, I feel like Kelly and I are in a really good place by way of support. Like thinking about what we need and what we're gonna need for the journey ahead, I feel like both from a medical perspective and for a, from a ministry perspective, that God has placed us in a good place. And we have in place at least now for what we can foresee. Uh, the, our needs are there, are, are being met. We feel supported, we feel loved, we feel strengthened. We feel like God has given us everything we need to get us through this season that we're going to step into. So I'm going to do this a little less frequently, but I want to tell you that it's it's a joy for me, brings me alive unlike just about anything else does in my life. And so thank you for your continued prayers for us as we journey and we make adjustments along the way to literally meet the demands of life that have been thrown our way, which that, that's what this series is really all about. So we come this week to our fifth week of our series equipped And it's our third week of looking at the equipment. Now, let me just say, by way of reminder, that Ephesians chapter 6 is not about the equipment. That's not the focus. The focus of Ephesians chapter 6 is the equipping the fact that God has equipped us and given us everything we need to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and to stand firm. And yet, we want to talk about these pieces of equipment. We're going to do that here momentarily. But first, let me say, for us to fully appreciate the ways in which God has equipped us to step into the arena and to meet the demands of life, we must have God answer the prayer. And we must join Paul in his prayer that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That we would be able to know the incomparably great power that is ours who believe. Now, the question is why does Paul tell us to pray that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened? He actually gives us the reason in the first letter that he wrote to the first century Christians that were living in the city of Corinth. He writes a letter and early in the letter here's what he says. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 12 through 14. Now, we have received the spirit of we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Now, let me just pause there. Obviously, there are two spirits. There is the spirit of God, but there is also a spirit of this world, which we've talked about earlier in this series, that we might notice it, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, now notice this, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly, they are foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. What Paul's saying here is this. Paul's saying here that logic and reason can never explain faith. Paul is saying that you cannot use your human intellect to comprehend the spiritual truths that God brings to us. There are things that only the Spirit of God, when he is deposited inside of your life and you come alive spiritually, that you then can start to go, okay, I get it. I never got it before, but I get it now. Because it is the Spirit of God within us that is helping us to understand what? the things that have been freely given to us by God. And that brings us to this fifth week. Because this week we're going to continue to talk and unpack the things that have been freely given to us by God, these beautiful pieces of equipment. And so let's start by reviewing first the first four pieces that Paul actually talks about that have been used to equip us. Ephesians chapter six, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God and you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Piece of equipment, number one, the belt of truth. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness, number two piece of equipment. Let's continue. And as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Third piece of equipment is the shoes that have been readied with the gospel of peace. And then notice this. In all circumstances, take up the fourth piece of equipment, the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And now we come to the final two pieces that we're gonna unpack this morning. Verse number 17. Finally, finally, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let's unpack those this morning, those two final pieces of equipment that God has already given to us that we are fully equipped with as we live out our lives here on this earth as followers of Jesus Christ. First of all, the helmet of salvation. Salvation is often something that we lay claim to. I am saved. I have salvation. But the reality is none of us can really lay claim to salvation because according to Revelation, salvation belongs to God alone. It is his. And and salvation is not something that we achieve. It is something that we freely receive. Salvation is not something that you have a right to. You are given a privilege to it because of Jesus, but we can't lay claim to the right to salvation. Salvation is a gift that has been freely given by God through his grace that we then receive by an act of our faith. We accept it. And what I think is so interesting this morning is that this piece of equipment, salvation is likened to a helmet. Now, the very first imagery that we find of this in scripture actually comes all the way from the Old Testament, hundreds of years before Paul wrote this letter. And, and, and it's coming out of the mouth of a prophet by the name of Isaiah. Isaiah's claim to fame was that Isaiah prophesied primarily about the coming Messiah the one who would complete the mission that God had given to the first humans, Adam and Eve, that was aborted. And now God is gonna raise up someone who is going to take up the mantle of responsibility of carrying his presence here on the earth and fulfilling the mission that God had given to what? Redeem the whole earth. To redeem the whole earth that had been corrupted by the enemy. And so Isaiah in his prophecy actually talks about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And here's how he describes him in Isaiah chapter 59. Powerful words. Verses 15 through 17. The Lord looked and was displeased to find that there was no justice. He was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed, So he himself, notice this, so he himself stepped in to save them with his strong arm and his justice sustained him. He put on righteousness as his body armor. Does that sound familiar? And he placed, notice it, the helmet of salvation on his head. He clothed himself with a robe of vengeance and wrapped himself in a cloak of divine passion. What is Isaiah catching a glimpse of here? Isaiah is catching a glimpse of the fact that God's son Jesus would come not only wrapping himself in a robe and a breastplate of righteousness, but that he was going to wear on his head a helmet of salvation that he was then gonna place on the heads of every single person that would place their trust and their faith in him. It's a powerful symbolism of what salvation does and where salvation comes from and how we have been given salvation as a helmet. But you might be asking yourself this morning, so what's the real purpose of salvation as a helmet? Well, obviously, Paul is writing this epistle from a prison, a Roman prison cell, Paul was very familiar in that contained position of seeing Roman soldiers coming and going who were keeping guard over the prisoners. Paul had a up-close and personal picture and image of what it was like for a Roman soldier to be fully armed. And no doubt... He was recognizing that they were a Roman soldier, not by their face, but by what? The armor they wore. He couldn't identify maybe each individual person, but what he could tell was this. They had an identity. They had a role. They had a place, and it was their helmet that often identified them, that gave them away. Headgear has a way of doing that, doesn't it? When we wear certain pieces of things on our head, it has a way of giving us away. Now, I will not mess my hair up for many people. But this morning, I'm gonna put on this that I got many years ago. Now, if, if, if I walked into the church this morning wearing this on my head, howdy, partner. If I, if I walked in this morning wearing this on my head, you would think I lost my mind. I did a leadership uh, tour with pastors a a few years back in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I was introduced to my very first cowboy churches. That's right. Everybody, all the men wear cowboy hats, including the pastor. I've been invited to come and pastor one of those churches if I ever want to, okay? But reality is you look at someone wearing a cowboy hat, and what are you thinking? You're not thinking they're getting ready to suit up to play football. Right, Because the headgear gives a person away. You might say, that's a cowboy. You might say, that is a person who's getting ready to try out for American Idol to be the next country superstar. But you're not gonna think that they're getting ready to go on the hockey arena or to go out in the football field and play football. Or if I took this hat I bought a few years back when I was in Botswana, and I put on my safari hat, There are certain places that you would wear this, not in the United States of America, okay? So I don't pull this out very often, but when I was in Botswana, it was the middle of summer. It was brutally hot, and the only way to protect your body was to cover it as best as you could. So I knew that right away I had to buy one of these, and I had to make sure I wore it. And most of the time while I was in Botswana, I had this hat on because the sun was so hot. But if you see somebody walking down the streets of Beaver Creek, Ohio, wearing one of these, you're certainly not gonna think that they're in place, right? That you're gonna think that person might be a little out of place. They might, they might be from a different country, but they certainly don't necessarily belong here. Listen, there is something about the headgear that we wear That identifies us. That when you see somebody, you go, listen, they're wearing that. And I recognize them because of what they're wearing. Salvation is what identifies us as a child of God. It is our salvation that's a helmet. That God says, I see you. You are wearing the helmet that my son wore when he came. And because you're wearing that helmet, I identify you as one of my children. Helmets also protect us, don't they? It is not coincidental that salvation is likened to a helmet because it is a helmet that is designed to protect us. Salvation is what guards our mind and guides our thoughts. Salvation is not just a heart issue. Now don't get me wrong, it's very much a heart issue, but it will also transform the way you think. It will change your mind, literally. And you will begin to think differently. You will begin to function differently. Well, a number of years ago, I made a really, really tough decision. I decided after uh, a number of years to sell my beloved motorcycle. I didn't do it because I didn't love riding. I didn't do it because I'd been in an accident. I didn't do it because... Um, I was given an ultimatum, although it was pretty close. But my wife finally said to me, Gil, I am not comfortable with you writing this. I mean, it was really a good, on her part, to really be clear about what she wanted, what she desired. And so I prayed about it. And then I prayed more. And I kept hearing Kelly's voice in God. Like I kept, I kept hearing what she was saying. And I knew, if I knew what was best for me, I should probably get rid of it. But there's one thing I didn't get rid of, and that is my beloved helmet. (laughs) Because just one day, maybe just one day, you know? Listen, I would never ride my motorcycle wearing this, right? I, I may like this hat, although I never pull it out. I may like it, but I'd never wear it. I wouldn't wear it, drive my motorcycle wearing that. I knew that one of the most important things that I would need to protect was my head. Because my sister-in-law who was an ER nurse for many years said, it's not a matter of if you'll be in an accident, it's only a matter of when you'll be in an accident. Thankfully, I never was, but man, I got pretty close on more than one occasion. And I was so glad that I was wearing this to protect my head. Listen, salvation does that for us, friends. We are saved by God and it is salvation that what? Protects us, guards us, keeps us contained and make sure that we don't suffer serious injury as we walk through this life. The other thing that I think the helmet of salvation does and the reason it's called a helmet is because it assures us. It assures us. You might ask yourself, why again a helmet? And it's because it was intended to be a reminder to us as we walk through this life that there is an ultimate deliverance that is coming our way that we are ultimately going to be assured that we're gonna be held by God. And that one day there will be an ultimate salvation that that I, and you here this morning, have not yet fully enjoyed. We've not yet fully experienced the ultimate deliverance that's coming. But one day, each one of us are going to give up our helmet And we're gonna exchange it for another piece of headgear. We're gonna exchange it for a crown. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since I've spoken, so I'm not gonna give you just one big ideal today. I'm gonna give you two. Aren't you glad you joined us this morning? I'm gonna give you two big ideas today. Here's the first Salvation is God's crowning act, it is God's crowning act. That's actually what is suggested to us in Isaiah's prophecy, that he would come wearing a helmet of salvation, but one day it is going to be exchanged by all of us for a crown. I don't know how many of you, just by chance, how many of you happen to see the interview of Oprah with Prince Harry and Meghan Markle? How many of you happen to see that? Okay, so just a handful of us, very interesting. Very interesting. And Oprah Winfrey in the interview actually said something. She asked a question, more in jest I think along the way, but she said, have you happened to see the show The Crown? Now we knew it had won many awards a few years back. We knew it was pretty popular. We had not seen it. But Kelly and I decided to watch a couple of episodes of The Crown, which is based on the life of Queen Elizabeth II, who continues in her position today. Kind of an interesting story. And here's what I learned by watching it. In the monarchy, loyalty is not to the individual, loyalty is always to the crown. There is something about wearing a crown that gives loyalty to you, so much so that even the mother, the previous queen, now looks at her daughter not as much as a daughter, but she's my queen. Here's what the Bible teaches. There is a day coming for all of us when we're gonna make a holy exchange. Our helmet of salvation is going to be replaced with a crown that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses seven through eight. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. No longer a helmet of salvation because we are now experiencing the fullness of salvation. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. The crown of righteousness is one day gonna be placed on all of our heads who remain faithful to God as we walk out this journey here on the earth. God never said it would be an easy journey. God never said that you would not experience blow after blow after blow. And that's why God said, I've equipped you fully with armor to be able not only sustain the blows, but survive them. It's not about just sustaining them. It is about surviving them and becoming all that God wants us to be, which brings us to this second piece of equipment, and really the sixth one that he talks about in Ephesians chapter six. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now interestingly, that word that appears there, that word sword, is a word that speaks to the offensive piece of equipment in the armor. It was the only piece of the armor that was used for purposes of offense. In every other case, every other piece of equipment is designed to defend and protect, not so with the sword. The sword was intended to be utilized in a way that engages a person, engages a soldier in close-up contact and battle. And what's so interesting about this is that Roman soldiers actually didn't have only one sword. They many times had two. They carried the long one that you would often see that was more of a symbol But many times for a Roman soldier as centurion, there was another type of weapon that they often used. It's actually the word that Paul uses when he here talks about sword. He's not talking about the real long one. What Paul is actually referring to is something that we might call a short sword or we may call it a dagger. It was something that was intended for close up battle and what we might call hand-to-hand combat. The literal translation of sword is actually slaughter weapon, slaughter knife. And so there's no doubt in my mind that Paul had several ideas in mind when he actually is talking about the sword of the spirit. There are several things that Paul is probably thinking about. First and foremost, Paul likely was thinking about the sword as a symbol. Because in the first century, when you saw a Roman soldier carrying a sword, what did you know? You know, you knew that they were authorized, literally deputized, to execute Roman law, to enforce it. Also, in the first century, the sword was often used symbolically to speak of a magistrate or a judge, someone again that had the power to execute the law. Not uncommon, even today, friends, in our court of law, in many courtrooms around the United States of America, to see what we call Lady Justice. How many of you are familiar with this image, with this statue? Pretty common. Many places of law have that up somewhere in or around their courthouse. Lady Justice, you'll notice three things, is blindfolded, symbolic of the fact that there would be impartiality and no favoritism in the way that the law would be applied. The scales. Speaking of the fact that every piece of evidence would be weighed on its own merit, and that it would have to come first because the sword was there, but notice the position of the sword. Justice was going to be the last thing that was gonna be lifted, but make no mistake about it, the sword was there symbolic, that even though justice may not be swift, it would actually prevail in the end, that justice would prevail. And I think Paul, no doubt, is thinking first and foremost about the fact that the work of God's spirit in our world collectively is one that is about bringing forth justice through mercy as we walk humbly with God. But Paul also is no doubt thinking about the work of God's spirit in us individually. That the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is actually doing a work in us individually. In fact, let me suggest this to you this morning. I would suggest that it is the word of God animated by the spirit of God that transforms us into the image of God. And that's what Paul is suggesting. That the word of God animated by the spirit of God is what transforms us into the image of God. Notice the language that the author of Hebrews uses when he writes about the word of God in Hebrews chapter four, verse 12. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, dagger, piercing to the division of the soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Notice the two adjectives used there to describe the word of God. The word of God is living. It means it is full of God's life. It is not a dead book we come to when we come to God's word. It is a book that is fully inspired by God And it's inspired to bring the life of God, the very presence of God to us. The second adjective used is that it's active. It's speaking of the fact that God's power is being revealed in us by its energy. It's energized and it's empowered by God's spirit. Um, We live in a day today where people are often grabbing one of these to get their boost, right? An energy drink. I know a lot of you here are big fans of energy drinks. And, And we all know what it feels like when you feel your energy tanking and you just need something to pick you up, right? Just to give me a boost. If I can't get caffeine, can't get a good Starbucks, there's nothing like an energy drink to give you the boost of energy. My wife and I have a sense about each other so much that we know sometimes what's going on in each other's hearts and lives. Uh, it's picked up by the demeanor. It's picked up by that which is said, sometimes that by that which isn't said. And it is not uncommon for us to actually encourage each other to fill up our energy, not by picking up a drink, but by going to God. Kelly will say to me from time to time, Gil, I just sent you might need some time with the Lord. And I know what she's saying. And there's times I say to her, honey, I think a good walk in the meadow with God would be really good right now. We love each other enough, we know enough about each other that we can kind of sense it. And what I'm saying here to you, friends, is this. The word of God is Red Bull in a book. It's Red Bull in a book. We don't need one of these to get energized, what we need often is we need the word of God filling our hearts. That is, the, that is the sword of God's spirit that gives us what we need, equips us for the challenges that we face. And it is the word of God in us that is at work in us. So the two adjectives, it is living and active. But notice how, how the writer of Hebrews actually talks about this. He says that the word of God is discerning and it is also perceiving the word is penetrating it means that it cuts through and it cuts away things that are not of god now can i say this to you friends this morning i think the word of god was always intended to cut through and cut away but never to cut down or cut off To that point, let me give you the second big idea today. The word of God is a weapon, but it is not intended to be weaponized. Have you ever had the word of God weaponized against you? I have. I know what it feels like, and I suspect some of you do as well, when you feel like somebody has manipulated or tried to couch things in scripture that were not necessarily the way God intended them, but they were used to manipulate you or get you to think a certain way, often like them. The word of God is a weapon, friends, but it was never intended by God to be weaponized. So when it comes to the word of God, let me say this. When it comes to God's word, yield, don't wield. Yield, but don't wield. Why are we to use scripture, the sword of the spirit this way? What is the big idea that Paul had in mind? Let me remind you of it again. Ephesians chapter six, verse number 11. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Here's the purpose. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil Let me give you a question this morning and you don't have to answer it out loud but just think about this who do you think knows scripture the word of god the best at grace crossing church It's not our elders It's not our staff team It's not even your lead pastor the person who knows scripture the best is Satan next to God. And the enemy knows exactly how to wield and weaponize scripture. In fact, I would suggest that one of his greatest schemes, one of the greatest and most beloved schemes of the devil, is to use the word of God to divide us and destroy us rather than unite us and heal us. That's what he does. That's how he operates. Yes, even in the church, he'll do it. He'll do it among people who are believers, family members. He'll do it to divide and destroy rather than unite and heal. And you can see it throughout scripture. There are two general ways that I think we can see the enemy weaponizing the word of God. It comes first of all in Genesis chapter three when God created Adam and Eve and we find the enemy weaponizing the word by what? Distorting it, misquoting God, by actually taking what God said and then manipulating the words. Did God really say? Didn't God really mean this when he said that? Didn't God really have in mind that If you take and you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're going to be just like God. You're not going to die. You're going to be like God. He manipulates the word. He does it with the second Adam, the one who had come to redeem what the first Adam did not do well, did not complete. The second Adam who's empowered by the spirit of God, is led to the wilderness and he is tempted there by the devil. And what does the devil do? In every case, the temptation is based on scripture. Pay attention to this. The enemy is using scripture as a means of temptation against Jesus. What's he doing? He actually is misquoting scripture, taking it out of context. He's taking a truth and he's pushing it beyond its intended meaning. Which can I tell you, friends, that too is error. Error is not just an outright lie. Error is also taking truth and pressing it beyond its intended meaning. And that's what Satan does. He tempts Jesus in three different ways using scripture every time. And what does Jesus do? How does he counter? He takes the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And he actually uses it not to weaponize, but rather to be a weapon to defend himself against the manipulation of the enemy. Now that's exactly what God has called us to do. We are, make no mistake about it, you and I are in a battle and sometimes we are in a battle for our very lives, heart and soul. And God has empowered us The good news is you are already equipped, just like I am, to do exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness. To be able to stand strong when the enemy weaponizes the word of God and we can come and we can bring the sword of the spirit to bear. To not only defend us, but actually, to actually come against his lies, the falsehoods, the interior motivations, the ulterior motivations that God wants to cut through and cut away in our lives. I love the way 1 John chapter two talks about this, verse 14, and as I share this this morning, I want us to prepare our hearts for communion. Because one of the ways that God equipped us is he equipped us by coming to us with his disciples, is a very final act that he had with them. He said to them, listen, you are equipped through my body, through my blood, to handle whatever comes your way. And here's what one of his disciples, John, the youngest of his disciples writes. I have written to you who are God's children because you know the Father. I have written to you who are mature in the faith because you know Christ who existed from the beginning. I have written to you who are young in the faith because you are strong. God's word lives in your hearts and you have won your battle with the evil one. All of us are in a battle today. It may not be one that you're even aware of, but but all of us are in a battle. The enemy of our souls will do everything he can to get our eyes off of God and to get our eyes on our circumstances. And so this morning, as we prepare for communion, whatever the battle is that you have this morning, you are already fully equipped because of the blood and the body of Jesus that was sacrificed for you. You can move through the battle with confidence that God is on your side, that you are not fighting for your victory, but you are fighting from God's victory. And God has assured you